0: We're looking at war today. We're in the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel today. We're in a study on eschatology. And eschatology comes from the word eschatos, which means last or last thing. So we're studying the last things that the Bible teaches are going to happen on earth and then, of course, moves into the eternal state. So I've entitled my message, The War to end all wars. Of course, that's a line that world leaders have used in the past. The war to end all wars. Well, we know World War One didn't do that, and World War II didn't do that, and other conflicts certainly haven't done that. But we're looking at the Battle of Armageddon today, the return of Christ and the Battle of Armageddon. He comes at the end of that. War is a disastrously common element in human civilization. War is defined as an active conflict that has claimed more than 1,000 lives. You wonder, has the world ever seen a measure of peace? Has the world ever achieved peace? Well, out of the last 3,400 years, so going back 1,400 years before the time of Christ, 3,400 years of recorded human history We've only experienced peace for 268 years on our planet, or less than 8% of recorded history. How many people have died in war? That's probably a follow-up question. You can Google that and find that out as easily as I did. At least 108 million, and they usually put the estimates a little low, at least 108 million people died in the previous uh, century in the 20th century with the wars that took place 108 million estimates for the total number killed in wars throughout recorded human history are somewhere around 1 billion people who've died in war that's a thousand million people who've died in war world peace is an unattainable goal both for politicians And I suppose for beauty contest pageants as well, you know, they always say, what do you want? Well, world peace, you know, it's an unattainable reality for both of those groups. But the Bible describes that there will be a war that will end all wars. At its end, world peace will finally be established and it's established by Jesus Christ. And, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't try for world peace now. The Bible even tells us pray for the peace of Jerusalem because so many conflicts have happened in that part of the world. But pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we should work, our world leaders should work to try and establish world peace. But it won't happen until the Battle of Armageddon takes place and it's culminated by the return of Jesus Christ. By the way, the word Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon, is only used one time in the Bible. It's described many other ways, but the term Armageddon, which, by the way, Hollywood is always producing movies about Armageddon, the end of the world, the final conflict, the end of mankind. But it's only used one time, and that's in the book of Revelation. We will see it here this morning, this final war culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ. There's no one place in our Bible that describes, which is really a campaign more than a war because it's a series of wars, and it's the Greek word polemos where we get polemics, but it's the word that means a campaign, a series of battles. There's no one place in the Bible that describes this war in its entirety, so we're going to move around this morning. Which only adds to the considerable debate amongst theologians about some of the details of this war. So let me say here at the very beginning, the farther we get into eschatology, sometimes things are not perfectly clear. They're subject to interpretation. We want to hold on to the big picture. The big picture is that there is an Antichrist, there's a time of tribulation, and at the end of that, Jesus Christ comes back before the world is completely annihilated. That's the big picture. So our hearts should be compelled to, to say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Our thought should be, this is not all there is. There's a world waiting after this one for those who believe in Jesus Christ war to end all wars. Take your Bibles, and I hope that you will this morning, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. We're going to look in Revelation. As I mentioned, Daniel and Ezekiel. There are other texts, but because of time, we'll focus on those three books. Revelation chapter 16, beginning at verse 12, I would like to begin reading. If you recall, in the book of Revelation, There are the seal judgments. Seals are opened, and judgment is poured out upon the earth. Then there are the seven trumpet, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments where a trumpet is blared and new judgment is poured out on the earth. And then the last set are the bowl judgments where bowls of judgment are poured out upon the earth. And we're picking up in the sixth bowl judgment explaining this final judgment. War. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. We know where that is, the Tigris-Euphrates River, are two of the most ancient rivers. They're mentioned in the book of Genesis, where the Garden of Eden was, Tigris and Euphrates, and two other rivers as well. He pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean beasts like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. That's Satan. He's called by many different names. But here he's called the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast. And he's called by several names. John prefers to call him the Antichrist. But sometimes he's called the beast and the mouth of the false prophet. It's an unholy trinity. Satan wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to take the place of God he has his own unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, or the beast, and the false prophet. Verse 14, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, Jesus says, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together in the place called in the Hebrew Armageddon. That's where we get the title, the battle of Armageddon. And they gathered them in the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. I'll stop reading there. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn back now to the book of Daniel. Ezekiel, Daniel, then we get into the minor prophets. So Daniel chapter 11, we spent some time in Daniel chapter 9. And you've heard me say, it's not original with me, but Daniel is considered to be the cornerstone of all biblical prophecy. Because he spells out the 490 weeks, which are 490 years of Israel's history. And the Bible tells us now that 483 of them have been completed, remember? So there's a seven year period left to complete the 490 years of Israel's history. Jesus rode on the donkey into Jerusalem. On the, I think it was the 11th of Nisan, that month where he presented himself as king and the Jews rejected him and within the week he was crucified. And that's what Daniel tells us in chapter 9. The Messiah would come and he would be cut off after 483 of these years have gone by. So now in chapter 11, let me begin reading at verse 36. Daniel 11 verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. This is talking about the king of the earth in those last days or the Antichrist. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god and speak blasphemies against the true god, the god of gods. And shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, till god pours out his wrath. For what has been determined shall be done. God is control of human history. He shall regard neither the gods of his fathers, nor have any desire for women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Remember, halfway through the seven-year period called the Tribulation, the Great Tribulation begins, the Bible says, 42 months, 1260 days, or three and a half years. And he stops Israel from worshiping in the temple. And he says, you're going to start worshiping me now. And he declares himself to be God. Verse 38, but in their place, he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. Thus, he shall act against the strongest fortresses. The most fortified cities, the strongest armies, with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its, its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So he's going to conquer the world for the most part. And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Not everybody is doing obeisance to the Antichrist. Not everybody likes his rule. The kings of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come down against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through them. He shall also enter the glorious land. Of course, we know that's the Bible, uh, lands or the land of Israel. He shall enter into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east, so he's conquered and maybe annihilated much of the kings of the south and their armies and much of the kings of the north and their armies. But news from the east and the north shall still trouble him. Therefore he shall go out and with great fury to destroy and to annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace. He'll make his lodging between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. I'll stop reading with those two passages. Let's get into some explanation. You know, in this series that we've been in on eschatology, we've looked at biblical chronology for the end times. The rapture occurs, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, did I say that? First Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the believers, the church, is taken out of this world. Sometimes it's called the silent return of Christ, because he doesn't come to the earth. He appears in the sky and The sound of the trumpet, the voice of the archangel, and God calls us home. So we're translated and transformed. That's the rapture. After that, some period, while we're in heaven, the judgment seat of Christ takes place. Not for our sins. But for our reward, because we're going to rule and reign with him. And after the judgment seat of Christ is the marriage supper of the Lamb. We looked at those three events where the world is in chaos. The Antichrist is ruling, but God's ruling from heaven. And we're enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb as his bride and rejoicing in his grace and goodness to us. Then... We looked at the seven years of tribulation. So clearly spelled out in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And it's a final week of Jewish history. God has set the Jews aside when they rejected their Messiah. And the age of grace or the church age came in. We've been in that for some 2,000 years. But God is not finished with Israel. He's promised them. He made promises to Abraham, the father of the Jews. He made promises to David that there would be a king on his throne on earth. So God isn't finished with the Jews, but he has to get them ready for his return. The tribulation begins, goes on for seven years, the first half being not nearly as cataclysmic as the second half, the Bible tells us. And then the Antichrist is ruling, declares himself as God. And demands worship and you will die if you don't receive the mark of the beast on your forehead or on your hand. And God completes that final week of Jewish history. The battle of Armageddon, as it's mentioned here in Revelation chapter 16, is actually a series of battles that take place. At the end of the tribulation in the valley of Megiddo, and many of you recognize that name. It's called different things in the Bible. It's also called the valley of Jezreel. Remember, Elijah had a contest with the prophets of Baal, and they slew the prophets of Baal, and he called on fire from heaven, and he ran across the valley of Jezreel and out into the desert, escaping Jezebel it's called the Valley of Jezreel. It's called the Valley of Megiddo. And here in the Bible, it's called the Battle of Armageddon, or in the Hebrew, Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo. A Har is simply a mound. And you can go to that today. If we go to Israel and the trip doesn't get canceled, there is a Har, which is a mound, or sometimes they're called a tell, where cities were built on top of one another. And that had many generations of cities being on it. So from the Har Megiddo, you can see the entire valley of Megiddo or just real. And it's 60 miles north to south and about 14 miles wide. It's surrounded by hills. It's south of Nazareth and it's west of the Jordan River and north of Jerusalem. So that 60 mile by 14 mile valley called the Battlefield of Armageddon. Matter of fact, Napoleon, when he set, saw it, Napoleon, the conqueror from France, said, this is the most perfect battlefield on earth. Funny that he would say that because the final battle is fought there. And of course, Israel and the valley of Megiddo is at the crossroads of the world. It's, Israel is where Asia is. Africa and Europe connect in the landmass, And it's always been fought over. It's been fought over since the beginning of time because who controls the Via Maria or the highway that runs through that land can cut off trade and control so much of world trade. So it's been a fought over piece of land for a long time. The Antichrist appears— and he enters into a peace treaty with Israel. We all know Israel would love to have peace because they're surrounded by Muslim nations that want to destroy him. They said they want to wipe Israel off the map. They don't want Israel to be considered a nation. Uh, and they've sought to destroy Israel. The Antichrist appears, and he brokers a peace with Israel. You have your Bible open to Daniel. Let's turn back there. I close mine from Daniel. And look at Daniel 9.27. And we'll look at a couple of other passages as well. Daniel 9, 27. Speaking in this passage about the Antichrist, verse 27, then he shall confirm or broker a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, remember a week in Hebrew could be a week of days or a week of years. And in the context here, of course, it's a week of years. In the middle... Of that week, the middle of those seven and seven years, 1260 days, 42 months, in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of an abomination, it shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, even until the end. He's going to rule, and there's going to be no sacrifices in Jerusalem, in the temple, except for worshiping him until the end, which is determined, and it's poured out upon the desolate. Daniel 9, 27 tells us the Antichrist brokers a peace with Israel. Halfway through, he breaks off the covenant, doesn't fulfill his word, and now they're left destitute. All the enemies are coming in their direction. He's been their defender. He's promised to defend them, but now he breaks his word, and they have nowhere to look but where? Towards God. And that's exactly what God is trying to move them to that point. At the end of the tribulations as the nation advance upon Israel, he moves his armies to Israel as we read, and he sets up his headquarters there. And you're in Daniel 9. Turn back one chapter. We haven't looked at this, and I'm trying to read through it quickly here. Daniel chapter 8. Let me read verses 23 through 26. It's probably inset in your Bible. It's a prophetic. It's prophetic. And in the latter time of their end, I'm in Daniel 8, 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, God says it's enough of sin by mankind. When the transgressions has reached its fullness, it's ripe. And God is ready to harvest souls and to punish sin and to stomp the wine press of the wrath of God, he says, has reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister scheme. He's a schemer, not so much a fighter, he's a schemer. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He receives power from Satan. Not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. And he shall destroy the mighty, the great warriors, the great nations and their armies. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. That's us. Or really it's not us because we're gone. It's the people who get saved. The holy people, those that belong to God. He's going to destroy or martyr the Christians as well as many of the Jews. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. And he shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, Jesus Christ. But he shall be broken without human means. God does it, not an army. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. Daniel is prophesying 500-some years before Christ. This is well into the future. Right now it's been 2,500-plus years since Daniel's prophecy. The tribulation comes. The Antichrist is ruling. He moves his armies to Israel, and he sets up camp there. And the armies are descending upon Israel from the south, that is Egypt, and the Muslim countries. Chapter 11, verses 42 and 43, we read that as well as from the north, and he names the nations Gog, Magog, and Gomer. If you look back in your Bibles into chapters in Genesis, Gog and Magog were the grandsons of Noah. Gomer is Germany. The Bible tells us they ascended, they moved after the flood, up into the northern regions of Asia, which we call Russia. And Rosh, as it's called, Rosh is the prince of God a term like pharaoh or king. And so the prince of Russia, Rosh, leads the armies of Russia and their satellite countries, and they invade from the north. Egypt and the Muslim countries are coming from the south and the southeast. And then, of course, the armies from the east come in. And we read that in Revelation chapter 16. Now, truthfully, the armies from the east, who is that? Probably is China, but it could be Iran. Iran has historically, Persia, its old name was, has historically hated Israel and attacked Israel and ruled over Israel. Maybe it's a combination of China and Iran, which are both directly east of Israel. And so all these armies from the south, from the north, from the east, and by the way, not from the west, because the Antichrist comes out of the west. Now, the Bible tells us he reformulates the old Roman Empire. So he's coming out of Europe. He's coming out of the West. And he has his armies, but the enemies of Israel are coming, and he forsakes Israel in the midst of this. Other passages give additional light. Why don't we just turn there very quickly. Ezekiel, just before the book of Daniel, Ezekiel. I want you to notice what a passage of scripture that sometimes makes people scratch their heads and understandably so Ezekiel chapter 37 I can't read the whole chapter he says here the hand of the Lord came upon me brought Ezekiel out into the desert and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones imagine that and then he caused me to pass by them all, all around. Behold, there were many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. Bones scattered here, bones scattered there, not connected, etc. Again, he said, prophesy to these bones. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll preach to these bones. And God says in verse 5, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will put sinews on you, and your flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, and I commanded, and as I prophesied, he's seeing a vision. There was noise. And suddenly a rattling, the bones started connecting from all over, bone to bone. Indeed, the sinews and the flesh and the skin came upon them. Verse 8, and he said, keep prophesying, son of man. And so he he keeps preaching to them, come from the four winds. The the four winds is a picture, you know, that euphemism, the four ends of the earth. Bring these bones from the four ends of the earth. And so I prophesied, verse 10, and breath came upon them, life came upon them, and they stood upon their feet in an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Ezekiel 37, God is telling Ezekiel and those of us who know Scripture that someday after Israel is scattered In the diaspora, I will regather Israel from the four corners of the earth. They may look like dead bones. They may look like they're isolated from one another. But I will call them back and I will bring them back into the land. God says in Ezekiel chapter 37. 38 and 39 talk about Gog and Magog invading from the north. But he gives them a promise because it wouldn't make any sense for Gog and Magog to invade the land of Israel if Israel wasn't there. So in 37 he says, I'll regather the nation of Israel from the four corners. By the way, that happened in 1948 when Israel was declared a nation. It happened earlier in the Balfour Declaration, but there was no teeth in it. So in 1948, Israel was given a land and declared a nation much to the chagrin of the Middle Eastern countries and they have their own land. God fulfilled the Ezekiel 37 prophecy by bringing Israel back to the land. And then in chapter 38 and 39, it describes the invasion of uh, Gog, Magog, and Gomer uh, coming to attack Israel. The armies of Russia and Germany coming down to invade Israel, as well as the southern and eventually the eastern armies coming as well. We're running out of time. So number two, we've talked about the gathering armies. Now let's look at the coming king. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the next to the last book in the Old Testament. So turn there, just before Malachi. I'm getting there myself. Hey, guys, Zechariah and Malachi. Zechariah chapter 14. The book of Zechariah is almost like a little book of John's Revelation. It's future prophecy. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 through 5, is what we'll read at the time being. Then the Lord will go forth... And fight against these nations or those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. Great earthquake, tells us in the book of Revelation, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, half of it towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. It would appear that the remnant of Israel has a place to flee to through this earthquake as they did later on, or earlier, I should say, um, when there was an earthquake there. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. This is the very thing that Jesus describes, and I'm not going to read it, Matthew chapter 25, but I want you to look at one more passage of Scripture, and we're about done here looking at, this passage and I'll simply explain them Revelation chapter 19 last book in the Bible let's read as he expands upon Zachariah's prophecy Revelation 19 beginning at verse 11 now I saw heaven open behold a white horse you ever wonder if there's animals in heaven well we know there's horses <laughs> and I saw a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true we don't have to wonder who that is and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His wars are always right wars. He judges and makes war. His eyes were like flames of fire. They're penetrating, they're discerning, like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood because he shed his blood, so his robe is dipped in blood. He's already experienced the wound that saves mankind. And his name is called the Word of God. Of course, that's another name for Jesus Christ. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us, guys. Followed him in white robes of fine linen, clean and bright. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried with a loud voice to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come, gather together for the supper of the great God. There's a marriage supper of the Lamb, but birds have a supper as well that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathering together to make war against him who sat on the oar. So he turns his attention, the Antichrist, Satan, from Israel and the other armies towards God and try to make war against God. Then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So Revelation 19 describes the tribulation and its end. Christ rides a white horse in the battle. He's faithful and true. He is revealed as being that faithful and true person in the Word of God. Plays off one another there. And he arrives at the Mount of Olives, bringing to pass the promise given to disciples. Remember, when Jesus ascended up into heaven, Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the angel stood by and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up in the heaven, this same Jesus which left and went into heaven and received you unto his cell? So the, the angels told him they didn't know all the prophecy, but they knew Jesus was going to come back. He will come back to this very place. So he fulfills this promise that he gave to the disciples, or at least the angel gave the disciples, and his feet touched down, we read it in two different passages: His feet touched down on the Mount of Olives, and it splits the mountain, it splits Jerusalem. It splits the Middle East, providing a way of escape for the remaining Jews. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 and 5. And the Bible tells us here in the passage you read from Revelation that both angels and redeemed humans who have gone to glory come back with him, riding on their horses, streaming through the skies, screaming from heaven. And they are clothed in white linen robes. Revelation chapter 15, verse 6. Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, which we just read. And together they make up the armies of heaven. So there are angels and there are glorified, redeemed humans that are coming with the Lord. And we will all witness the quick and final end of evil. As Satan is judged, nothing in the scriptures indicates that any of us will be actually involved in battle. We'll never unsheath our swords if we have them. Jesus doesn't need our help. He needs our worship, or he desires our worship, but he certainly doesn't need our help in battle. Christ defeats his foes by the power of his spoken word. The same word that he spoke in the worlds came into being, the same word will destroy Satan and all the evil armies that he's fostered and foisted against him. This is not a protracted conflict. This is not at this point, battle upon battle, not at all. This is not a protracted conflict between Christ and the evil trinity of Satan, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Christ's very words in the battle destroy his enemies. The Bible tells us here, mentions it twice, that the fowls of the air are called to feast upon human flesh, Revelation 19, 17, and 18. Verse 20, the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire, alive, where they remain for a thousand years. And I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but they're released at the end of the millennial kingdom. Makes us say, why did he do that? Why did God do that? Why not just keep them there? But it tests mankind one more time after a thousand year perfect reign of paradise, Jesus Christ being on the throne. They're released from the bottomless pit, the lake of fire. Now, there will be many people on earth still alive who weren't killed in the plagues, who had no part in the battle of Armageddon. They weren't in the armies that fought against Israel and ultimately fought against God, and they're still alive. So before Christ sets up his millennial kingdom, he judges. This is one of the judgments in Scripture. He judges the nations, the Bible tells us, And sets up his millennial kingdom and he judges both the Jewish nation and the Gentile nation. He tells us that. Matthew chapter 25 is not one of the passages we read this morning, but you should read it 31 through 46. And of those who are still alive upon the earth, saving faith will determine the fact that they go into the millennial kingdom. Where the world is recreated because it's pretty much been destroyed. Christ sets up his throne upon the throne of David, and he rules with a rod of iron. There's no rebellion, there's no question, and it's perfect. It's, it's perfect harmony. There are human beings in their natural body that go into the millennial kingdom, as well as those of us who've been raptured or saints from the church age whose bodies have been resurrected, and they now have their glorified bodies. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to think about. There are, there are human beings that are living and reproducing during the millennial kingdom because the Bible tells us that some who die at an early age of 100, they died in their youth, it says. The Bible tells us that there are human beings that go in their natural bodies into the millennial kingdom as well as those of us who've been raptured or resurrected from throughout the church age. It'll be an interesting uh, arrangement that God has set up for us. We will reign alongside those who have received their glorified bodies along with those who have their natural bodies. Now, I said that was the last passage, but you're probably in Zechariah. I'm going to show you one more verse as we close a verse of encouragement. Zechariah, next to the last book there, Zechariah chapter 12. Because it's a chaotic time, God's judgment is poured out through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. The Antichrist has destroyed many. There's a great soul harvest. We know that. The two witnesses, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, as well as the angel that flies overhead preaching, the Bible says, the everlasting gospel. There's a great soul harvest of which the world has never seen. Mostly martyrs. Well, what about Israel, too? What's their end result? Notice Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of of supplication. So they're praying for God's mercy. They're praying for God's deliverance. They're praying for God's salvation because of all that's going on. The Antichrist is forsaken. The armies are there upon them. I will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they have Pierced. they'll remember. The Jews will remember what they did to the Messiah when he came the first time. When they hung him on a cross, when they pierced him, and the Jewish nation is converted, all Israel, the Bible says, will be saved. All those alive will be saved through the influence of the preaching and the influence of the angels, the two witnesses. But then seeing Christ appear in the sky seals it for them. Seals it for them. Yes, they will mourn for him. As one mourns for his only son. He was their son. And grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. Chapter 13, verse 1. And in that day... A fountain shall be opened for the house of David. That's the Israelites. A fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Their sins will be washed away. God illustrates that for us. Two very encouraging verses that are set in the midst of this time of chaos and death and war. So let me ask you. The Bible says they will gaze upon him whom they have pierced and they'll believe have you gazed upon the Lord Jesus Christ have you set your eyes upon him who is altogether lovely because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave and his ascension into heaven have you gazed upon him thought about him embraced him I think if you will carefully consider him, then you will faithfully follow him. If you'll carefully consider his description and his triumph in the word of God, you will faithfully follow him all the rest of your days. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we know you're in charge. We know you triumph in the end. You come in victory for the purchase that was made at Calvary to receive your own unto yourself and to tie up human history. And Lord, we thank you that we can know you now and then we can escape the wrath to come as you've told us. Lord, our prayer would be that if there's anyone in this service or anyone listening via electronic means that they would trust you as Savior if they haven't done that already. And they would know Christ who do no right is life eternal. That is our prayer. It's our desire and much more your desire. So help them find their way to Christ. Allow us to help them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.